And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Hey everybody, welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. I'm coming back here this month, kind of excited to be back with everybody, because, uh, you know, I always miss out. Uh, miss out when I'm not able to make certain meetings, and of course the last podcast episode was uh, all together down in um, the south. I was still stuck up here at the big ASDAH meeting, so missed out on that one uh, and missed out on the podcast. It's okay, it's okay. I, I appreciate uh, being able to hear it and see everybody. It was a great episode, so... Anyway, this month we've got a pretty a pretty cool guest here that I um, am excited to talk to because the book that just came out um, is a pretty great book, but I'm not going to give it all away. Michael, who do we have here with us today? Well, I'm delighted to introduce uh, David Trim, who's the Director of Archive Statistics and Research at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and he is a uh, eminent historian of, of Seventh-day Adventist history, and he's also comes with a really rich background, trained as a historian. He, he comes with a background in military history, actually, kind of a um, historians have different periods of time. Uh, I think you would consider yourself an early modernist, wouldn't you, David? An early modernist, yes, originally. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm married to an early modernist, so I, this is becoming a more familiar terrain for me. So, um, and and what's really cool um, is not only is he a great historian and administrator, but I also consider him a wonderful friend. And so I always look forward to opportunities to get together. Something really cool I didn't know about until uh, recently, and um, I was Googling, and I discovered um, our guest today, uh, Dr. David Trim, has his own Wikipedia page. And uh, so if you want like the skinny uh, of, 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 of quite a lengthy list of professional uh, publications, books and articles ranging from uh, military history to, to Adventist history. Now, he um, taught for uh, 10 years at, at Newbold College and was the Walter Ut chair in history at Pacific Union College before he took on his role his current role, I believe, in 2011. So uh, welcome, David, to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. Thank you. It's very good to be with you. Thank you for having me on. And we're excited today specifically for our listeners. We are talking about a new book. I was sitting in spring meetings uh, for the for the church, and they were announcing this really cool initiative. I kind of knew it was coming down the pipeline, but heard about it more a little bit more officially. In fact, uh, David was announcing that as part of this broader initiative 160 years uh, since the uh, General Conference was organized. We'll hear a little bit more about that. And they passed out copies, and uh, I already had one that I had gone down and was fortunate to have, uh, to in fact, even get David to sign it. Hearts of Faith, how we became Seventh-day Adventists. So anytime we have a new book in Adventist history, we like to highlight that. And, and so it's a great privilege to be able to talk with you, David, about the book. So um, and want to just kind of uh, begin a little bit. Uh, we've interviewed you once before with Dragoslava soundtrack um, about the Encyclopedia of Adventism. But, but for our listeners who might not be as familiar, obviously, you've done a lot of work in history. But tell us um, how you became interested in history and specifically um, in Adventist history, what what makes what makes you to uh, what gives you a, a fire, I should say, to to want to write a book like this? Because no book just happens by accident, you know. There has to be, there's a story behind the story. So tell us your story, David. 
Sure. So I, I've always been interested in history as long as I can remember, since I was a very small child. Um, and since I was around the age of 12, I was especially interested in early modern Britain and Europe. Um, looking back with hindsight, you know, this may owe something to um, the fact that there was a period when on for Friday night worship, my father would read a chapter from the Great Controversy, which of course has a great deal of history in it, and indeed a great, especially about the history of the post-Reformation era has a particular significance in that book. Um, and also we had two historical novels when I was growing up written by Walter C. Utt, who was a longtime professor of history at Pacific Union College about the Huguenots, uh, early modern French Protestants, a minority living in a Catholic state who faced persecution, went through wars of religion, had a period of toler official toleration, and then the official toleration was was ended and they suffered great prosecution and many of them apostatized, but many others fled and went all around the world, including to uh, the North America. So I think, you know, looking back, those may be some of the roots, but, it, you know, it's, I, as I say, I've just always been interested in history. And around the age of 12, I read books on the English Civil War and Oliver Cromwell and sort of became hooked. Um, I always had an interest in uh, in 20th century military history as well, and that's still my hobby. That I read that for 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 fun and relaxation. Um, but professionally, I was more and more drawn to the early modern period. And then when I went as a student to Newbold College in England, um, my tutor there and mentor, Dr. Harry Leonard, was an historian of the 16th and 17th century. So that really just helped to to shape it further, this was the period in which I was most interested, though really I had probably already uh, decided that the 16th and 17th centuries was what particularly interested me. Um, and so uh, the first part of my career for 15 years, if you include my PhD research time, I was an early modern military and religious historian. And um, there was a in the late 90s, when I would tell people that I was an historian of war and religion, people would sort of look at me strangely as though, how, are you, how can you combine those two? And then um, after 9-11, that became a very, people just took for granted that that, was, that that made sense. But at the time I started, it didn't. So my publications um, up until 2010 were entirely on early modern history, well, some late late medieval and early modern history, um, and um, a mix, as I say, of military and religious history, sometimes both of them in the same essay or the same book. Um, but then I always had the interest in Adventist history because I'm an Adventist. Right. And so I, I couldn't not be. I can remember reading George Knight's book about A.T. Jones, back in 1988, at the time of the bicentenary of the, the Minneapolis GC session. Um, and at Newbold, I occasionally was asked to teach Adventist history, because as you know, in a small, Michael's done this, in a small college, you end up teaching all kinds of things. 
by the way, I just want to interrupt for just a second. Harry Leonard, um, for our listeners, our last episode was at ASDA. And David, you gave a, a very nice tribute in, in, in remembering him. So I was impressed of what an incredible uh, professor and what an impact he made. He, well, he wasn't at ASDA, but we honored him at ASDA because he passed away last yeah, that's year. That's what I meant is he, yeah. he you you honored him at ASDA. Yes. Uh, and others that, that have passed away in the last, since the last. Yeah, year. and there were a number of people at ASDA who had also been students of Harry Leonard and had been t had their lives mm -hmm. touched by him. So um, in 1999, it was the 125th anniversary of J.N. Andrews. And it's, it's, it's strange to me to think that we're on the verge of the 150th anniversary next year, that, you know, where have the years gone? Um, mm -hmm. But that's, there, they, there you are. They have gone. It's nearly 25 years. And I organized a conference at Newbold um, to mark the 125th anniversary of Andrews. Now, in order to make it a big conference and have a, a really major event, we, um, we did it. We didn't just look at Andrews and the mission to Europe. We looked at it in the broader context of the history of religious minorities in Europe. And it was called From Persecution to Pluralism. And we actually had nearly 100 scholars come, um, of whom at least a third were non-Adventists. We had papers on, on the Valdenses, on the Huguenots, on modern uh, religious minorities in Europe. Uh, but we also had papers on, uh, on Adventists. And three volumes of proceedings came out of that, Two were on early modern Europe, but one was on Adventism. So in 2010, I actually had my first publication on Adventist history, a book co-edited with Daniel Heinz, uh, who has just is just retiring now from Friedensau Adventist University in Germany. Um, so that marked the, the, the shift towards becoming an Adventist historian. And in 2010, by coincidence, I was asked to become director of archive statistics and research for the General Conference. So that book, which had taken 11 years to come out because it, you know, there were all kinds of delays with it. Um, those who aren't used to the world of academic publishing will think that's an astonishing long time, but, uh, and it probably is, but it's, it's not as rare in the world of academic publishing as people might think. Um, but eventually it came, and so it, just by chance it came out that year the same year that I transitioned to my current job from having previously taught at Adventist colleges. And um, so I thereafter was focused on Adventist history. I've still published on early modern history. Um, periodically, I've, I've published an article or a, a, a book chapter in a, a scholarly collection of essays. So I haven't abandoned early modern history, but overwhelmingly since 2011, my work has been focused on Adventist history. I think you asked how I came to, to write yeah, the book. I was book. Just about to nudge you in that direction. Like, I mean, tell me the story of the book. <laughs> so 2013 was the 150th um, anniversary of the founding of the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church with the establishment of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists in May 1863. So uh, in 2012, um, the GC, maybe late 11 the, or 2012, the GC became aware of this and decided to try to, to uh, commemorate it. And so I was tasked with a lot of the work of 
of helping to, to do that commemoration. And so we began to put together resources to put on, on, on the website about how the church yeah. got united. And so we had a series of short articles on various aspects of early Adventist history. So I had all these that I'd written. And then I also got asked to speak at camp meetings in 2013, including the Wisconsin conference, because it was the 150th anniversary of their conference, as well as of the, the general conference. Um, and so I had to put together PowerPoint presentations and talks on Adventist history. And so um, at some point, I forget when, I put all of these together into chronological order and found that I had the makings of a narrative. And so I've, I've, I've worked on that since, off and on, more off than on, up until uh, 2021. Um, but period, you know, and as I got asked to do other camp meetings, for example, one at Minnesota in 2019, where Michael, you were also a, a speaker. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would continue to, I would, I would elaborate on it. I would do more. And I realized in 2021 that I had, uh, the makings of a short book. I'd always had in mind to turn these into a book, but it was kind of like, what sort of, is this long enough for a book? Uh, but in 2019, I published a book with Pacific press called the living sacrifice, the story of missionaries who had given their lives for the church's mission program. Um, and that was only around 30,000 words. And so I realized that I didn't have to wait until I had 50 or 60, much less 100,000 words. I could publish a short book. So I pitched it mm-hmm. to um, Pacific Press as a book on how we got from 1844 to 1863. Um, and they were interested. So in late 2021 and early 2022, I set to work and actually smoothed it all out because, of course, these were different things have been composed at different times. So you have to blend them all together. You have to fill in mm-hmm. the gaps because mm-hmm. inevitably gaps had arisen. Um, yeah. And I did more research on the especially the late 1850s and early 1860s. I'd done quite a lot of research on the late, the mid to late 1850s, how the church began to organize. But I did more on the early 1860s, how you get from the decision to call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists to actually forming a general conference. So that's where Hearts of Faith comes from. Love it. So is this going to be a series, David? I mean, <laughs> There is a natural stopping point, but there's are, so much more you- left. I mean, you have it, the living sacrifice, which is probably one of my, my, I think it's my favorite thing I've read from you. Um, I haven't read all of your stuff, but, but that's, I love those mission stories. And it seems like you have the makings of kind of a, a, a broader series. I don't know. Well, actually, I'm working on a book now for the 150th anniversary of the church's missionary program uh-huh. that's next year, because 1874 was when Andrews went to Europe. So 2024 uh-huh. is the 150th anniversary. Um, so I'm literally almost finished um, a book on Adventist mission to 1915. And it's 1915 because, of course, that's when Ellen White dies, but it's not just a convenient hook on which to hang one's coat, so to speak. It's also um, the case that Ellen White was crucial in pushing the Seventh-day Adventist church to foreign mission Um and so it's there's a focus on on Ellen White. Uh, so that would make a trilogy, if you like. There's the um, mission stories from the bottom up, told from the perspective of, of, of individuals, and then mission 
told from the top down and in between Hearts of Faith, which explains how we got to the stage of needing to send out missionaries in the first place. So that would be my Adventist history trilogy, Michael. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I like trilogies. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at titles here. Hearts of Faith, Hearts of Service, and a third one of some kind. I mean, you could you could you could really blend things together there. Hey, I'm I'm hearing you. Uh, the the book kind of grows out of this um, this camp meeting uh, motif. You know, you're working with churches and local groups, and um, I'm curious because I'm I'm always wanting to get our history out to the the wider church audience. What were some What are some of the glaring holes um, that you have noticed the typical Adventist lay people have? in viewing their own church history? Because I hear it, you know, in local settings, but you've had more chances to kind of see the broader landscape. What what kind of things do most people just not realize about their church? I think uh, there's masses of things, actually. I think most Adventists aren't really well-versed in their history. Um, they're aware of the broad outlines, you know, 1844, and then the church gets organized. Most wouldn't even know that 1863... Um, that the church was necessarily founded in that year. This year is the 160th anniversary, and the GC is doing a little bit of commemoration of that, um, but really looking forward more to the 150th anniversary of mission next year. Um, so people are aware of 1844. They know that sometime in the early 1860s we got organized. They know that I think many would know that Jane Andrews was the first missionary got, that got sent out they know Ellen White dies at some point in the early 20th century. But um, I think uh, apart from from that, um, there's a lot of, 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 of holes really in people's historical knowledge. And I think Michael will have found this as well, talking about Adventist history to groups of lay people, whether at camp meetings or, or, or just regional days at a, a local church, people are often fascinated because they don't know their own history. <laughs> um, and so, and it, and our history actually is interesting. So <laughs> it is, it really is. So it's, yeah. it's easy to get people interested simply by going through things with them. Mm. Um, one of the camp meetings I spoke at was the Northern California conference camp meeting in 2014. And I'm going to boast a little bit here. That's, um, that's my home conference. So I, was, I'm, I'm, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, the Redwood Camp mm -hmm. Meeting. I've been there many years. Um, yeah, a great event. Uh, and I was in one of the, a morning speaker, and um, I started with probably 40 or 50 people in a tent because Redwood Camp Meeting, as Greg knows, but not everyone will, really is a camp it still. Is. People, there's, no, there's almost no permanent structures. Everybody's in tents or in um caravans or RVs or, you know, motorhomes and so forth. Um, so I was in a tent and by the end it was, it was standing room. There must've been mm. uh, 110, 120 people. Um, and I'm boasting a little bit, but I think it, a lot of it wasn't to do with me. It was to do with the material, which was just people found fascinating. And um, I, I did a talk uh, at Pacific Union College that autumn, and somebody came up to me and said people were still talking about that that series. <laughs> they, they, but, they were, but I think that's just that's because people just didn't know, and so it was they enjoyed being enlightened about our history. Yeah, I I came to this conference in 2015 actually, so my first camp meeting was the next year, and everybody was still the next camp meeting talking about oh we're we gonna get another speaker like Trim that that was amazing nobody had heard of this stuff it was 
it oh. was a well well known and well discussed topic so oh thank you greg i didn't yeah. know that that's nice to hear <laughs> so my my question i'm going to come to this thing and this is the historiography side of me now as as a historian is there's there's a lot of, of books covering early Adventism, 20th century, not so much, but the Millerites, early Adventism. So why, why this specific book? How do you see this as making a contribution from, you know, those who've gone before um, what you've written? That's a great question, Michael. And I think actually there's, there's a lot on the Millerites. There's less on Seventh-day Adventists from around 1845 up to 1863. Um, if you look at the great standard narrative histories, um, Olson, Spaulding, Maxwell, they cover that era, but there's more of a focus actually on um, on Miller, because obviously the great disappointment's an incredibly dramatic event, right? Say it's the it's the moment um, that everything happens, right? Right. Or the great anticipation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or the build up to it. You know, it's it's exciting. This is when when our roots are. Um, but those great narrative histories sort of then move forward to once the church begins to, once the church is organized and ex begins to expand, there actually isn't that much on the late 1840s, 1850s, and very early 1860s. So I felt there was a, a historiographical gap there. Um, I know your audience are all history enthusiasts. That's why they listen, so we can talk in technical <laughs> terms. I thought there was an historiographical lacuna yeah. there. Bring it on. Um, <laughs> And also, even those who have covered it have, it's often been um, a focus on Ellen White. So, you know, I can remember as a boy in Sabbath school, hearing the story of Ellen and James White crossing the Mississippi on the ice and so forth. Mm -hmm. So yes. I must have been seven at the time when uh, my Sabbath school teacher told this dramatic story. So we're, we're, mm -hmm. we're kind of familiar with that. And some people would be familiar with Ellen White going up into... Um, Wisconsin or Minnesota and finding Andrews and Loughborough and telling them you've got to go back to it, to ministry. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like the focus is just on Ellen White. Um, what about the rest of the church? How did we get, how do we get from October 22, 1844 to May 21, 1863? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. it seemed to me that there actually isn't, wasn't much on that. So I decided that was one reason I decided a book on the subject would be worthwhile um, just on, just on that. Uh, and the other thing is when Adventist, this is, I think is a serious weakness of Adventist historiography. It's yeah. very much an histor a history of doctrines. Mm. And if Theological it's history. the, it's, it's historical theology. Absolutely. And yeah. in fact, if you even talk to anyone who took an Adventist heritage class at an Adventist college, which is, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's required of all Adventist college students. It certainly is of anyone doing a history major uh, or a theology or religion major, and other people might take it. And I've had this experience, almost all of them, it's just a history of doctrines. It's not actually a history of the church. It's just a history of how we got to a certain number of doctrines. And normally it ends around 1870 and then has a quick dash forward to 1915 for the, dash of, for the death of Ellen White. Um, yeah. So I wanted to tell a story that wasn't just about doctrines. There is a chapter there yeah. on how the doctrines yeah. develop, but there's more to the story. 
I want to interrupt for just a second, because I, I think for our listeners and and thinking about the development of Amethyst historiography in different ways, that would probably be, would, would it be fair to say, like, for example, George Knight, and, uh, you know, I've enjoyed reading his books, you mentioned them before, um, would that be like the biggest difference between, say, he's written, obviously, a lot in Amethyst history, too, right? So you're... He, he was more of a, theolo- a historical theologian mm. in his approach, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, I think that's right. Obviously, he has the book on the the growth of Adventist organization. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the story that I tell as well. Um, but also, you know, I have a chapter in there that's really social history. What was it like to be an Adventist yeah. in the 1850s? Mm-hmm. Often very isolated, having little contact. And so it was trying to, it's trying to tell a more rounded story. There's a chapter on the doctrines, but there's also, and there's a chapter or more than one chapter on organization Um but what was it like to be an Adventist? So there's something on yeah. the lived history, the, the, the lived experience of being an Adventist. And I think this is important uh, because we've had a lot of people that are pastors and theologians that become historians rather than historians that have actual training in history. You know, so that cultural milieu and the, the social history those kinds of things are really important aspects of our Adventist story. And there's still even more. I mean, you hint at some of those things, you know, and I've heard you hint also in, in presentations and conversations we've had, such as economic history, right? right. And and I, I see those little vignettes where you, where I'm like, okay, David, David, I, I could see, I know what David's doing here. You yes. Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the financial history of Adventists, how are we, you know, the, the image we have is that Adventists, and I haven't written on this, nobody has, I'd love somebody to, yeah, we to need be it, inspired. We? Um, the yeah. image we have of early Adventists is that they're very poor because we have, you know, we know this story of Ellen White cooking raccoons or whatever it was for James White, because that's all they can afford. Or Bates is um, getting money in the mail. and Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But I think what we misunderstand is that the leaders were very poor. And I've, I've listened to your um, podcasts about the response to the, uh, the response to the podcast that called Adventists a cult. Mm-hmm. And in one of those episodes, oh, in yeah. one of those episodes, you talk about how James White was very entrepreneurial, but he wasn't necessarily yeah. very successful as an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. um, not consistently. No. And, and of course, he's not trying to make the money for himself. He's putting, when he gets money, he's putting it back into the work. So I think Adventist leaders are very poor, but um, yeah. we, couldn't have, we couldn't have sent Andrews to Europe and then other missionaries to Europe as well and sustain them there if there weren't some money in Adventists. So I think the idea that Adventists are all very poor is is yeah. a fundamental misunderstanding based on the nature of the leaders as opposed to the several thousand members. And my guess would be that actually most Adventists were, today you might call lower middle class, they were property-owning farmers, but that meant they were, they were probably farming cash crops, so they had some disposable income. Um one of the fascinating documents we have in the archives, and I've, I've discovered it but never done anything with it, is something okay. from the 1890s where the GC asks all the conferences in North America to send a list of members who are worth over a certain number of thousand dollars. I forget the, the sum, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the list. There's the list so that the GC can, can reach out to them and, and ask them to support funds. Um, we know that Jotham Aldrich, who was the chair of the opening, the founding GC session, was from property and money. We know that John Corliss, one of the first missionaries to Australia and a pioneer in religious liberty work, had money as well. 
Um, I would suspect that these are less isolated examples than we sometimes think. Uh, but no, but but it, it remains guesswork because nobody's worked on them. Yeah. I, when you're looking at the history, we've got enough institutions and educational um, uh, uh, growth in these early decades. Somebody had the money to buy the property for it and build the buildings and, you know, put some some things up front to it. So, right. Yeah, it's, it's clearly there. We just don't talk about it as much. Right. We couldn't have founded the Western Health Reform Institute, which becomes Battle Creek Sanitarium, if there weren't some money involved. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and there's examples. I mean, I, I found going through testimonies for the church of uh, people like Elon Everts, and there's others that Ellen White clearly, clearly is referring to. And you go to actually to the census records and see how much property he had, which is, you know, the, the main way of, of, of measuring wealth in the in agrarian culture, right? And um, clearly, you know, by today's standards, we would probably consider him to be a multimillionaire. I mean, he was fabulously wealthy. So. Right. Um, there are those stories, but we haven't done the economic history, um, and 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 you're right. And so maybe one of our listeners that's listening is an aspiring historian that will, or maybe someone looking for a dissertation topic right. that would be fabulous if someone would do that. And you know, to Greg's point also about institutions, I think one of the weaknesses of Adventist historiography is that it's so much of it is biography, with which I would include institutional biography. Mm-hmm. So it's the story of sure. a life. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, look at Gil Valentine's wonderful book on Jay and Andrews. And it is. It's a superb Mm -hmm. piece of scholarship. Um, At one point, he uses a manuscript collection of Jay and Andrews' aunt. Mm. Um, But he only uses it for for the light it sheds on Jay and Andrews, which is fair enough because he's writing a biography. But, you know, there's a diary there. what could that reveal about <laughs> the lives of early Adventists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We don't know because he's only looked at it for the light it sheds on this one person who is the subject of his biography, and so that's fair enough. You also have the histories of institutions. You don't have so much synthetic history, which is a synthesis across individuals and institutions, and Hearts of Faith is that. In a, in a modest way, it's a it's a popularization you know, of, of my work. It's intended to be read by anyone. So it's, it's, it's at the sort of popular level. So it's, I wouldn't say that it's deep scholarship, but I am uh, proud of it in that it, it fills this historiographical blank spot as we've talked about, but also I think it also is interesting in being um, a synthesis as opposed to just the study of one individual or one institution. Yeah. And I, I want to compliment you, by the way. Um, one of the things that, you know, you can always tell, the range and work and scope of someone's work by their uh, sources, their, their their footnotes or endnotes, right? And and uh, versus just something very popular. If someone's kind of listening to this and not as familiar with, but but you want to be able to um, obviously can't document every possible little thing, but you want enough that you can see okay, where is the person getting their ideas? And and what I think is one of your great contributions, in addition to having that broad cultural you know, uh, social milieu and being sensitive and writing that narrative more broadly. Um, I love how you intersperse little bits and details mm-hmm. from the archives. I guess this should be no surprise since you're a director of archives, right? But um, I love on page 35 um, where you're talking about the second advent enthusiasm, right? And you're, you're providing some context that, uh, you know, one of the challenges was it, it and I'm, I'm, I'm referring to this on the page before, 
um, the excitable extreme fringes of American Christianity, right? So there's this element of, 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 of the fringe or scandalous that, that is plaguing both the Millerites and will become and, and remains kind of problematic, right? For the early Sabbatarians. But I love, and this is the point I'm trying to get to, is, for example, you quote the Journal of John Emerson, who I had never heard of before. Um, and it looks like you found that on online, somebody uh, that, that's now in private hands. You mentioned that in your footnote. Yeah. And then later on, another manuscript collection. I didn't even know you had it at the, at the GC archives that, and I love that appeal, not only to, you know, what have, what, what, you know, various historical sources that people have used, but just going back to the mm -hmm. primary sources. And so, David, I just want to compliment you on that because that just kind of, that's what one of the things that just made it a really fun and enjoyable read for me. Oh, great. Thank you very much, Michael. And I would say, you know, it's, it's both, it, these add some, some texture, and this is always the case mm -hmm. with, with manuscript sources, um, which is why as professional historians, we would, we would gravitate towards them over printed sources. For early Adventist history, inevitably, one relies a lot on the pages of the Review and Herald, which, which I have done. But these, of course. These, early, these early manuscripts just add some texture because they're firsthand mm. accounts. And so I was, I was pleased to be able to discover these. Yeah. It, the, the other texture that stood out to me, honestly, was uh, the amount of, of, of photographs that you, you included throughout here. I, I, I always love seeing pictures of, of old folks, especially in our early years. Yeah, yeah the, the tintypes, and, and, and you can just see the progress of photography even over the decades as it kind of comes through. But uh, names and, and people that I don't usually see pictures of, uh, Joseph Frisbee, Otis Nichols, um, you've got some some great um, stuff in there, and I I know for some of our listeners, how they may be wondering how we actually get these pictures. Um, does does the archive usually keep a huge collection, or are we still finding this stuff? How do we how do we get some of these lesser known figures? So we do have a very large photograph collection at the GC archives, but also the Ellen G White Estate has a huge photograph collection, and the center, <coughs> pardon me, the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews University. Um, so <clears throat> it's, it's partly the general conference archives, but most of our photographs are from a little bit later. So for early Adventist photographs, the Ellen White estate is really a treasure trove, um, as is the center for Adventist research at Andrews. Nice. And if people, so if I, people wanted to okay. Google the Adventist digital library, uh, more and more of those photographs are being made available on the Adventist Digital Library. It's one of my favorite spots on the on the website. Honestly, I always browse through. I can't imagine you going uh, there, Greg. You know, <laughs> photography is always kind of. In, <laughs> I, I photography of in high school. Dissertating so. <laughs> dissertation. Yeah, indeed, um, David. What? Who's your favorite character? Just personal. You know, just throw it out there. Instant response. You written all these early Adventist pioneers. Is there one you see an affinity to that you really like? I don't know that I see an, I don't know that I see an affinity to him personally, but um, I was really or her. I, I was yeah. really drawn to James White. Um, okay. And what, what makes you excited about James White? Well, partly he has a difficult personality. That's why I don't necessarily say I see an affinity to him. <laughs> all right. All right. Fair enough. We don't, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, who do you like? You know, I James. Mean, so yeah. James White, I think, is a fascinating person. Can be very difficult to get on with, and later in life becomes even more difficult to get on with. In by the eight, late eighteen sixties, in the late eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, the church is in danger of splitting because he 
and Uriah Smith and J.N. Andrews and uh, a couple of others just can't get on. And one of the major roles of Ellen White, actually, is that she's the one person who can can uh, can tell James White when he's being pig-headed or, stu- or foolish or, or you know, you need to you need to rein yourself in, um, because he's such a powerful character, and he has this wonderfully acerbic, sarcastic writing style, uh, which I quote several times in the in the book, um, and I, I you know you, you just almost laugh out loud. Um, reading it, especially if, like me, you appreciate sarcasm. It's sort of a British thing. Maybe not all American <laughs> readers would. Um, but uh, Andy... That's that's okay. We'll, we'll accept it the way you are. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at, there's, I don't quote it in the book, but there is one point, actually, where somebody writes a letter to the review and says, you know, I think, I think Brother White has been too harsh about this person. And so we, we know that it can give offense. And yet... Um, in 1860, at the what they call a general conference, not in the way we mean it today, but the general conference at which a, a, a conference that is general, at which they choose the name Seventh Day Adventist to be their distinguishing title, um, the minutes which are in the review, the first, you know, it must have been ten minutes were spent in procedural jousting backwards and forwards about, you know, what's the correct way to go. And then finally they get to the business and James White begins and says, um, brother chairman, I hope I may call. And he's talking about Joseph Bates, who's chairing, uh, you know, I hope I may call him brother because Mr. is so cold. Hmm. And so I, myself, I discovered when I, I, I had never encountered it, but I discovered it at the GC people use the term brother chairman as opposed to Mr. Chairman. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I love that. And I, I, at first I found it strange, but then I discovered that it, it where the history was and that it has this long history. So I, so I often use it myself. And there's an in, example. James White may have this truculent style and seem not to get on, and yet he can say of, of, of Joseph Bates, you know, I want to call you brother chairman because Mr. is so cold. <laughs> um, and in 1863, of course, he actually, in a sense, is the first person elected GC president because the minutes actually say he is elected. They don't say he's nominated. They say he's elected, but he refuses to serve. Um, and it, the minutes actually describe how there's some minutes spent while they are with the brethren trying to prevail upon him not to prevail upon him to serve and him giving reasons why he shouldn't serve. <laughs> and, of course, the reason is he doesn't want it said that he has spent the last 10 years campaigning for more organization simply so he can become king of this little kingdom. yeah. yeah. And so I, I, you know, I think there's something really noble about that, and, and that he actually, you, you have a, a period of time in which everybody is p- trying to persuade him to serve, and he's arguing, no, you can't have me serve; it needs to be somebody else. So there's just something compelling right. about the character of James White. I he think. doesn't fit the the, the stereotypes oh. of leadership, hungry power. Yeah, it's just not. He's a different guy than you no. come across personality-wise. Yes, and and yeah. if you just read his writing style, you think, you know, wow, how difficult he must be to get on with. And as I say, he he becomes more so as he gets older and as he suffers strokes, yeah. which he does from yeah. an early age because he is a massive overworker. Yeah, you know, he if you look at photographs of him when he dies, he looks he's only in his sixties and he looks as though he's in his eighties. Mm. 
this is part of the the messiness of history, right? The complexity, right? So there's it's not it's not all good or bad, you know. There, but we can admire those good aspects of his life and yet acknowledge those uh, challenges, you know, and and shortcomings as well. And I, you know, that's one of the things that gets me really excited about where I I see Adventist historiography is is I feel like you know it's okay to be able to write that kind of history. Here you are working at the General Conference and you can write a very candid history of the church and do so in a way, but that is also um, faith affirming, you know, it's not apologetic, but, but in a way it's, it's uh, with that nuance and acknowledges that complexity of, of history. Yeah. The complexity of history is a great point, Michael. And I, I, I do think um, whenever I've met with Adventist historians, there's kind of an assumption that you can't do Adventist history uh, you either have to do it, you can't do it while working for the church because you're going to be, end up just doing apologetics and that Adventist history has to, if, it, if it's to be good, has to be harshly critical. And I think it's possible to be truthful and historically accurate and acknowledge failings and shortcomings and yet at the same time be faith affirming. I don't think those are either or options that you have to be one or the other. I think it's possible to be both, and I I, I try to, to do both. A, a kind of a happy medium or a via media, yeah. you know, where you know um, where you don't have to go to either extreme. And and I think this is where some of the most fruitful work is happening in in Adventist studies and Adventist historiography right now that I'm I'm really excited about. So um, I, I again I, I thank you for this this uh, this contribution um, for our listeners. Hearts of Faith: How We Became Seventh Day Adventists by uh, David Trim, and this is available through Pacific Press, which means that if you have an Adventist book center near you, right. uh, whatever that may look like, um, you can purchase it there, of, of course. Um, I was recently at, in Southern California last weekend, and, and people I was hanging out with, they're like, yeah, but we don't have one near us anymore. <laughs> and so if that is the case, you can buy this book on Amazon. Um, I think it, it, it may not do the next day delivery, but you can you can get it fairly efficiently. Yeah. And there's also a Kindle version. So it, it is available electronically. There is a Kindle version, or you can go to AdventistBookCenter.com. AdventistBookCenter.com ah, is, is the Pacific is this the website Pacific Press sells its books through. But it is available on Amazon, including as a Kindle. So thank you for mentioning that. That's great. Hey, I always like to have a last question. So so David, here's 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 it is. What keeps you up at night as a historian? Uh, in terms of Adventist historiography, what kind of stuff is just either really on your heart as a real burden or you're just, uh, you, you, you have some, some nervous energy attached to it? So, you know, it, it, that's really the, the history of the church's mission. Hmm. Um, and I have published, talked about an Adventist trilogy, but actually the General Conference Archives has its own book series, the General Conference Archives monographs. And with two of my colleagues, I co-wrote a history of the church's missionary enterprise that came out in 2021. Uh, that's available on Amazon as, as well. If you go to Amazon and search for, for my name, that would bring that up. Um, and the book I'm working on at the moment for the 150th anniversary of mission is about mission. But, you know, there's so much more that could be said. And I, of course, so the trilogy is really a trilogy of books with Pacific Press. Mm-hmm. Um I've got other books on Adventist history, different aspects, and, and so indeed a book that came out October last year is a short overview history of Adventist mission in China. Hmm. 
Well done, I might add. It's a, a very nice intro. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a brief, but it's an overview. But it gives you it gives you the broad contours of Adventist history in in a in a in a concise format, including a lot of charts that show the statistical development. Um, so you know, I've 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 written quite a lot on Adventist mission, but there's really so much more that could be said. And while a living sacrifice is, as I mentioned earlier, a sort of bottom up recounting, telling from the point of view of the missionaries, there's a whole lot more that could be done with that. Um, and the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists, the ESDA, uh, does, has many of these stories, but there's a need for, for more synthesis again, rather than just individual biographies, um, which the Encyclopedia has many of, and they're, they're just inspiring and humbling to read. But there's so much more that could be said about Adventist mission as it goes around the world. And so that's that's what excites me. I love it. Well, um, it, thank you for joining us, uh, David. Uh, we've been listening to Dr. David Trim, uh, Director of Archive Statistics and Research at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. His new book, Hearts of Faith, How We Became Seventh-day Adventists. If you're listening to this podcast, we encourage you to get a copy of that, read it. You will uh, be delighted. It's a great uh overview and thank you for that contribution david and uh and so we're just glad to have you on this uh, next this episode of adventist pilgrimage podcast thanks for joining in and if you love adventist history probing and exploring the adventist past that's what we're about every month as we uh, uh seek to better understand um our adventist past so thanks for listening to another episode of adventist pilgrimage podcast And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. God, God. 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 God.